1: Benjamin Netanyahu has been the Israeli prime minister since 2009. Uh, he was prime minister also back in the 90s, and some total is the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. It seems like his reign might finally, finally be coming to an end. On Wednesday this week, a, a group of opposition parties, a crazy diverse group spanning the far right to the far left to an Islamist party somewhere off on a diagonal, have agreed to unite in a coalition that has enough votes to take Netanyahu out of power. Whether or not this agreement will stick around long enough to actually dethrone Netanyahu is is sort of an open question at this point. But right now, it's really looking like that's going to happen, and Israel will finally, for the first time since 2009, get a new prime minister. That's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Jen and Alex, uh, we did not intend to do another Israel episode this week after the Israel-Hamas-Gaza War, but this is a, wow, this is a really big deal.
2: All right, so are we going with King B.B. or B.B. King? Because I vote for B.B. King. Uh,
1: I mean, you workshopped this before the episode, right? Like, we were on a call for a while, and Alex was just like running back and forth with <laughs> B.B. King jokes. And, and like, yes, we get it, Benjamin Netanyahu's nickname is B.B. It's it, it's kind of like a blues singer. I get it. I'm, I'm very...
2: It's, it's very close to a blue. It's like almost I'm, exactly like a blue singer. That's I'm why just, it's great.
1: I'm very proud of you, Alex. Your commitment to dad jokes is like, it, it far outstrips <laughs> mine and, and I'm an actual dad. Damn. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> okay. I am also not okay. a dad, so if it makes you feel any better. <laughs> I don't know how much of this is going to make it in the final episode, but... <laughs> 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 Sophie, our producer, just looked at us on the Zoom and was like, oh, I don't know about that. Um, but look, obviously it's... This is a pretty surprising development, right, because it it looks like the deal to knock out Netanyahu had fallen apart during the war, right? It looks like they were getting close to it, but then one of the right-wing parties uh, led by Naftali Bennett, the party's called Yamina, didn't want to enter a coalition agreement with Ra'am, the Islamist party headed by Mas- Mansour Abbas, during the, the violence that was not only between Israel and Gaza but between Jews and Arabs on Israeli streets— so it looked like everything was over, right? And we were going to go to head to the fifth election in two years in Israel. And yet, somehow this, this agreement happens. It's, it's pretty remarkable, right? Right, Alex?
2: Yeah. I mean, especially because Naftali Bennett, who leads Yamina, as you mentioned, was was pretty clear, like, look, during the conflict, we don't want to get anything done here. This is, you know, a big issue. We probably are going to head into election. And then kind of when the violence ended, or at least, you know, there was a ceasefire and, and died down, he kind of went, well, look, one of my main promises was there will not be a fifth election. And like, we now need to start governing. And so we're going to go ahead and create this extremely, like, as you mentioned, diverse coalition of of parties to get together uh, enough to form a government. For those who don't follow parliamentary procedures closely as we do, in, in almost every case, what you when people go to, to vote, they vote for parties, and then the parties form a government by having more than half usually of the seats in the parliament. In this case, there's 120, and so these parties create 61 seats. So they just made it over, but that's how thin the margins are. And if basically there are any defections, in a sense, um, the government falls and we're back into the back into the election cycle. But it does seem like Bennett, who by and we'll talk about him more, but in in some cases is considered even more to the right than Netanyahu on on, on many issues decided to go ahead with this because, well, he has a bad relationship with Netanyahu now, one. Two, there seems to be a, a sort of transpartisan agreement in the country that it's time its time for Netanyahu to go for corruption reasons and just long, how long he's been there. Um, and then also, look, personal ambition. Like, Bennett wants to be prime minister um, as a bunch of other people in the coalition certain, certainly do. Uh, and so they went ahead and, and made this happen. Uh, but like, okay, now you have everyone from the far right, far left and as you mentioned, sort of this diagonal islamist party, like what are they gonna do? What do they agree on? Uh this this is sort of the the problem now and one of the reasons why there's kind of a belief that this government may fall apart fairly soon, because again, not only the thin margins, but the opposition leader is gonna be no one, you know, no other than Benjamin Netanyahu, and he's gonna absolutely do everything he can to make sure this government falls, so then he's there left standing and takes over again. I kind of have a different take on that, on that particular point
1: because Netanyahu is the glue in this coalition, as one expert I spoke to put it, right? The reason that these parties exist in some kind of agreement – and again, it's possible he peels some people off before the actual vote, which is in you know, about six days. Until then, nothing's set in stone. But the reason that they've been able to come to an agreement, which they wouldn't have come to if it didn't seem like they were pretty solidly aligned on this – is that they hate Netanyahu and are really, really tired of him monopolizing the Israeli political scene. Right, the guy's been in office consecutively since 2009, for the past, again, two years, four elections. And the reason for that has been primarily that Netanyahu has been trying to get out of jail. Right, What he wants— the Knesset Israel's parliament to pass a bill that would immunize him from a series of pretty serious charges that he's currently on trial for. These range from like misappropriation of government funds to cementing a corrupt deal with an Israeli media outlet where he exchanges government favorable government policy for favorable coverage, right? Which is obviously like wildly and flagrantly. Anti-democratic and and abusive and and corrupt, and you know the evidence against him is pretty strong. And if he's convicted, he faces up to ten years in jail time. So he's been flailing, trying to get a law passed that would functionally immunize him from prosecution, and that has split Israeli politics into this sort of total warring camp situation, divided less over policy than over whether or not you want Netanyahu in office right now. As long as he is there, as the enemy. That brings people who otherwise have nothing to talk about together. And as long as he's there and not in jail leading the opposition, the specter of returning to what we've had for the past two years I think is a very strong incentive for the coalition partners to stick together.
0: Yeah, and just to to clarify what you said, the the law he was trying to push through would basically immunize him from from being prosecuted while he was sitting as prime minister, right? Yeah, so – that's part of the issue of why he wanted to stay in power. So just to kind of clarify that point. And yeah, Bibi Netanyahu has dominated Israeli politics for as long as a lot of people can remember in terms of modern political memory, right? For for the last decade plus, it has been Bibi Netanyahu. There are entire you know generations of young people who came up in Israel and in the United States who view Israel through the lens of Netanyahu's kind of right-wing views. Again, it's not Official yet. Um, the vote we talked about, you know, Parliament has to essentially vote to have confidence in this government for it to officially go through. So it's not a, a general vote. Uh, voters aren't going. It's it's the Knesset voting essentially to approve this government. And that happens in a few days. And like we said, it, it could fall apart between now and then. So just that caveat. But if this holds and goes through and BB is actually unseated, I, I don't think it's, you know, overstating it to say what a massive sea change this is. Just the fact that this is is possible, that this is happening, right? The the fact that Bibi won't be in control of the Israeli government for the first time in a really long time is huge, right? And I think we've talked about this on previous episodes. The the views of, of Israel, Palestine, and the conflict um, you know, specifically in the US and elsewhere are changing. And a lot of that is because of this right word shift that has happened in Israeli politics led by Netanyahu. And so seeing this complete kind of shakeup is really fascinating. But it also, again, (laughs) I think it's hard to overstate, we keep using the word diverse, and it it is this coalition, but it's like historical to see an Islamist party, an Arab party, in a coalition agreement with a far-right, pro-settler, Jewish nationalist party and then Yair Lapid, Mr. Centrist, and Gideon Saar. And like, it's just this wild coalition that no one thought would happen. And we didn't think it would happen to, you know, Alex, you mentioned this. After the conflict most recently that between Israel and Hamas, there was a lot of talk that how this would support Bibi, right? It would help Bibi because he has always kind of framed himself as like, I am the defender of Israel. We need a strong, robust, you know, security state to you know, prevent against this kind of violence. And previous conflicts have kind of boosted him. And that didn't seem to happen, even though, you know, it looked like it was going to end up going that direction. It seems like there's just so much desire on the part of all of these different political actors and and parties to just get Bibi out the door and just move on and try to have some sort of change. It's literally the Change Coalition, right? They're not hiding the fact that they have nothing else that they really agree on. I mean, Neftali Bennett himself just this week promised no one will have to change their ideology (laughs) by becoming part of this coalition. Like that is extremely explicit saying, look, we don't agree on anything and we're not going to try to convince you to change and become part of like an actual functional coalition. We're all just allying to get rid of Netanyahu. The question then becomes, okay, well, what happens after that, right? Because you will have, far-right, pro-settler Neftali Bennett, ostensibly, as the prime minister, which that's very different than Netanyahu in the sense that he's more to the right on many issues, especially the Israeli-Palestinian issue. But what do you do? Like, yes, he's prime minister, but he is in a coalition with an Islamist party and with centrist party and et cetera. So I think the questions, and we'll get into this more obviously, but I don't know how this, you know, yes, it's good to govern and yes, we need to move on and And get away from this cycle of endless elections, as Naftali Bennett was kind of promising. But how does that work in practice? I have no idea.
2: There's a quote that Yair Lapid, the the centrist figure who is also an important member of this coalition. Just to to put the fine point uh, that Jen said and how everyone's been saying, Netanyahu's been around for a really long time, right? Here's a quote he gave to foreign policy in March, which I I had to read multiple times to kind of wrap my mind around it. My middle son was born in 1995. When he was seven months old, Netanyahu became prime minister for his first term from '96 to '99. In the meantime, my son has gone to the army, finished the army, got engaged, broke his engagement, went to university, and is now finishing his degree. And Netanyahu is still prime minister. <laughs> like, like
1: wow, <laughs> no, that's
2: funny. Granted, he still has like you know a political incentive to, to say stuff like that, but. I believe it to be true. Like it, that, that's just how long he's been. How you know important he's he has just been and is a central figure in Israeli politics and Israeli life, which makes this government of change, this coalition of changes, they're sort of calling themselves, uh, a fascinating experiment in. Being sort of like anti politics, like uh, Bibi, who I'm sure, like the actual Bibi king, feels like nobody loves me but my mother. Like in this case, (laughs) like every literally, like everyone in Israeli politics is like, we just want him out. That is what binds them. That is the glue. Well, well,
1: well, like that. On the other half, like on on one half of the ledger, right? Like Netanyahu was very close to forming a coalition. And it's not just his party, right? Like what makes this coalition different than a lot of Israeli ones in the past and, and really interesting in a lot of ways is that it excludes entirely the ultra-Orthodox. There's not a single ultra-Orthodox faction that's involved right. in this coalition. And that's that actually, when we talk about all these new parties disagreeing on everything, that's mostly true. The only area in which there is some alignment is that they are all skeptical of the influence of ultra-Orthodox parties on power and of Jewish religious authorities on Israeli public life, right? Like, Naftali Bennett is religious himself, but he's a— uh, religious nationalist, which is distinct from the ultra orthodox in terms of the religious spectrum inside Israel, and one that is certain, and his party is secular, right? And, and his his number two, Ayala Shaked, is is avowedly secular, right? Yeah, the on party's purpose. <laughs> yes, right? Like that—that's the idea is to create a more ecumenical, political right inside Israel. Then you have the Islamists who obviously have no attachment to Jewish law being a major part of Israeli law, and a whole bunch of secular or left-wing parties that are avowedly hostile to the influence of religion on Israeli public discourse. So, So there are lots and lots of differences between the political factions here that are involved in this coalition. But like one notable point of agreement is that the sort of very, very very religious Jewish establishment has potentially more power than it should uh, inside Israel. So maybe you could see actual legislation on that, but I think on the whole, I agree with both of you that this is just a a coalition of of opportunistic people who either have principled or uh, personal reasons for disliking Bibi, right? Like Naftali Bennett and Avigdor Lieberman, it's the head of Yisrael Patenu, which is another right-wing party. This is also a secular right-wing party. They both have served in Netanyahu governments under him, right? And for a lot of time, you can see a lot of ideological affinities between them on certain issues. Bennett is even further right than Netanyahu is when it comes to settlements. He really pushed for the idea of annexing parts of the West Bank earlier in his political career, which then became mainstream in Israel in large part due to his efforts. So... It's a very, very complicated set of arrangements, but also one that reflects the way in which the traditional right, which is a fusion of religion and uh, conservatism on foreign policy, really uh, consolidated behind Netanyahu with a few
2: exceptions. And then everybody else is on the other side. Well, very quickly, Zach, I guess the the point I was trying to make is and I I feel like you kind of made it for me, which is (laughs) good. I'm glad. No, but like this coalition is they're against stuff, right? Like you even mentioned, they're against this, this you know, religiosity and and they're against Netanyahu, but like, what are they for? I don't really know. I mean, Bennett did say, like, they might do some education reform and some other things, but you do need to govern, and with a thin margin, you need to show results, and if you can't even, like, fine, you hate these things, or you're against these things. But the other side, the Netanyahu side, seems at least coordinated, and they know what they like. They like Netanyahu, and they like what he's put forward, and Et cetera, et cetera. So that that to me is sort of the big problem here. It's like, we we just don't know what they're going to do. And that's that's already just on the political side dangerous, let alone just like the whole Netanyahu aspect.
0: Yeah. I mean, I kind of want to dig into a little bit about who Neftali Bennett Please. is. I've met him in person. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. Uh, but when I used to work at the Brookings Institution Center for Middle East Policy, I used to Help run the annual Saban Forum, which is a forum on Israeli-Palestinian issue and brings together a lot of political figures um, among just Israelis Palestinians and other others involved in that conflict and negotiations, et cetera. And um yeah, Natali Bennett came to Washington one year and he's, I have to say, he is an incredibly compelling figure in terms of uh, as a politician. I, I disagree um extremely strongly with his views, but He's young. He's dynamic. And you know, Bennett spent a lot of time you know, living in the United States. He's, he was born in Israel, but he lived for a long time in the United States with his family. He is basically like a sort of a tech entrepreneur. He and some buddies got together and decided they wanted to start a company and they ended up doing so and started this kind of high tech company. They sold for millions of dollars. You know, he ended up pretty well off, but he's not, you know, <laughs> he jokes and says that doesn't mean the kids won't have to work. But he he is a very, you know, he has set him up as, a, as the new face of the right in Israel, the younger, more dynamic, kind of, you know, moving away from some of the older paradigms of the Israeli right. But he was also very much seen as, in many ways, as Netanyahu's protege. One of his children is actually named after Netanyahu's older brother. He served in the military. He has very strong kind of, I mean, he fought in the Lebanon War You know, he came back from that war, was very critical of how the government and the military handled that war. He thought Israel essentially should have done more to stamp out Hezbollah in Lebanon and that they bungled it. Um, And that's what essentially got him into politics. But he's very much, he led a a settler council. When we're talking pro-settler, he's pro-settler. But he doesn't, interestingly, he doesn't live in a settlement. He lives in a nice neighborhood in Tel Aviv. Um, So he's very much seen as this kind of, you know, it's this weird not you know religious like you said not the the orthodox kind of view of of a jewish religious nationalist it's very much a, a more modern religious nationalist movement but to be clear like we're going to talk more about what all of this potentially could mean for the israeli palestinian issue but he is avowedly against ever ever having a palestinian state he has said that that he will do everything in his power to fight against the palestinians ever having a state and he believes that all of the occupied territories are essentially belong to Israel, from the river to the sea, uh, from the Jordan River to to the Mediterranean. That that is Israel's land. That there should be no um, concessions. There should be no Palestinian state. They should annex all of the West Bank. Like he is not secret about that. He has bragged about killing Arabs. He is not the kind of you know we're talking about a change coalition and like what this means. But if you're just looking at Naftali Bennett and you're thinking, oh, okay, wow, so the end of Netanyahu, maybe, you know, things will change and and Israeli politics will be less to the right. If you're just looking at Naftali Bennett, that's not where things are going. Um, But again, we'll talk about the
1: coalition. Yeah, yeah. That's the problem, right? You can't take him in isolation. Exactly. So the way the coalition is structured, it's very weird. So Bennett's going to be prime minister first for two years. Right. And then two years after that, Yair Lapid takes over. Lapid is a journalist by trade and very a center. I would say potentially center left. Usually, when we talk about centrist in Israel, it means broadly speaking center right. But Lapid uh, is is very much a two state supporter. He is also extremely, extremely secular, very progressive on domestic social values. Under this agreement, he serves as foreign minister in the first term when Bennett's prime minister, which you'd think would be just sort of you know subordinate to to Bennett's will. The the tricky thing that throws a wrench in all of this is that Bennett and Lapid have a mutual veto agreement. So the way this coalition works is if one of them decides they don't like the decision, they have the unilateral power to scupper it when the other one is prime minister. So it's not just a matter of, oh, Bennett gets to take over first and Lapid has to do whatever he says. Not at all. Not at all. Bennett is constrained by his partner who is – you know, somebody who's not going to let him get away with his inflammatory, most inflammatory anyway, policies. Now, I'm sure there are some things they won't like, but then there's also the rest of the coalition to contend with, right? They have only a few votes to spare. And if they, if Bennett tries something along the lines of what Jen was just describing, this kind of dangerous anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab demagoguery, he runs the risk of losing the left Right, because you have Meretz, which is the like real left-wing peace party in the coalition. You have Labor, which is the traditional center-left party in Israel. You know the the champion of the peace process, and of course you've you've got Mansour Abbas and the actual Arab voters and, and, and Arab Knesset members that you need in order to keep the coalition running. And like under all those conditions, I, I could see how abstractly one can look at the situation and be like. Prime Minister Bennett is arguably a downgrade from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But if you look at the the broader context of what this coalition actually is and the way that it works, Bennett will not be able to be Bennett. He will have to be a prime minister constrained by the center and left of the Israeli political spectrum. Uh, And that certainly means he can't do a lot of the stuff that Netanyahu got away with while while he was prime minister.
0: Right. And and I, I absolutely agree. I think that's spot on. The thing for me, though, is that, well, one, as you said, Bennett gets the first two years. And then, uh, you know, ostensibly, Yair Lapid would get the next two years. That's assuming that it lasts that long, right. first of all, right, And second, you know, Natalie Bennett has wanted to be a prime minister for a very long time and has been openly working toward doing so. And the thing for me is that once he's in that prime minister's chair— do they get a fancy chair? I'm not sure, but you know what I mean.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's a stool at best. No.
0: <laughs> Maybe it's like a spinny chair. I don't know. Because it's revolving. Get it? It's terrible. Um, uh, so
2: Leave the dad jokes to me, Joe. Yeah,
0: yeah, fair enough. But the thing is, you know, once he's in that position, then, you know, once he's seen as having been prime minister, that alone changes his kind of political um, image, right? And so I think that puts him in a situation where he did even, you know, given the veto issue and everything else, he's still going to be probably prime minister. And that is not anything to thumb your nose at, right? That That is a big, powerful position in Israel. And having been in that position, even if he's constrained, I guess my concerns are that going forward in the coming years, does he then, you know, is he able to gain more and more power, more and more attention, et cetera, and able to eventually su- supplant Netanyahu as the kind of face of the of the hard right and of the new right. And then then you know does he end up in a place where he doesn't have those constraints?
2: So so one quick point is uh, I'm not as like optimistic as as perhaps you guys are on you know Lapide vetoing uh, Bennett's actions in part because he also wants to be prime minister, right? And if the rotation then comes to him, he has a vested interest in making sure the government survives the couple of years until he gets to be in charge. And so, while you're right, he does have the ability to, on occasion, or actually almost on any occasion, say no to Bennett. Like a government that isn't governing falls apart, especially one with this, these thin margins. So there is the theory out there, and it, it's not super widespread, but I think important enough to mention that, like Lapide may be just okay for the moment of kind of letting Bennett get away with stuff for a while, just so he eventually gets to be prime minister. Um, and so you know that that then would imply Bennett gets to kind of use the, like, the government will fall as a a cudgel um, against uh, Lapid's own veto authorities.
1: All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss the sort of the stakes of what we've been talking about uh, for the Palestinians, for the United States, and for Israel's place in the world. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the new government in Israel, or what we think is going to be a new government. I should hasten to add, because we uh, weren't—we were too invested in the details of the coalition to to expand on this point. You know, they still need to take a formal vote. And once they do that, then Netanyahu is out. But there are a few days in in the way the Israeli system works between then. So if Netanyahu can convince a few members of one of the right-wing parties to defect and join his party— then the coalition can fall apart. That seems unlikely at this point, but unlikely in Israel is very much not impossible. So it is still theoretically plausible this new government's coalition government will never be. But it does seem like it's going to happen. And, and on that assumption, we now want to talk about what the implications are if Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid take their partnership to to the top job in Israel. Uh, first, I think the most obvious thing to talk about is what will happen to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. My own instinct is that the answer to that will be basically a, a perpetuation of the status quo as long as this government lasts. Uh, Jen, is that your sense, too?
0: Yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, I, I mentioned it that in the first half, Neftali Bennett's hardcore pro-settler and pro-annexation views, but— Pierre Lapid is a centrist uh, and is you know generally in favor of the two-state solution. There are also other camps who are, you know, there are members of the coalition who are even more, you know, staunchly in the pro-peace camp. So I don't think you're going to see, you know, because of those divisions, I don't think you're going to see any massive changes in either direction. I don't think, you know, it's not suddenly going to create the the circumstances that make a a peace, you know, agreement or even returning to the to the negotiating table, likely. I think you may continue to see, when we're talking about the status quo, continued, you know, settlement activity. I don't know if you're going to see a settlement freeze. I think you could maybe see the settlements slow down somewhat, but I doubt unless there's kind of external pressure from, you know, the U.S. or, or you know, other areas that you'll actually see like a firm settlement freeze. You know, Bennett was hardcore against that. I think, you know, my my gut instinct here, based on knowing this uh, stuff pretty well, I think that you're probably just agreed to do nothing, essentially. Like everyone disagrees on all of the, the details. So they're just going to kind of leave it and pay attention to Israel internally and, and trying to govern there and the political situation there. With the the caveat of like trying to make sure that the ceasefire with Hamas holds.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, uh, just to echo one of the sort of ironies here is that Netanyahu has made so many gains for the right wing in Israel and like just kind of ending even thoughts of the two state solution and, and taking you know and occupying more territory, that that issue has kind of been somewhat off the table. I mean, not it will never be off the table, right? But it's just not as vital at this moment. And so you could imagine, just as you said that this coalition will focus more on other things. Because in part, we, you know, Lapid and Bennett have differing views on it, but also they, there's not much space to move. You also have the U.S. that doesn't really want to push for any progress here. So they're going to do other things, like get the economy back going, make sure the pandemic is squashed, make sure the ceasefire holds, and then perhaps some other areas of agreement that they that they might have. But this is, the irony here is like Netanyahu somewhat sowed the seeds of his demise it, by by again, like just making so many strides in that space, and then not necessarily good strides, but he's made such an effort that like the ne- this coalition just doesn't have to think about that too much.
1: I think one helpful way to think about it is that there are sort of three big traditional areas of cross-cutting tension inside Israeli society. The first one is security. You know, relations with Arab states and the Palestinians primarily, and, and foreign policy in general. The second is sort of ethno-religious divisions. Obviously, Jews and Arabs are near the top of that, but you also have tensions between uh, the Ashkenazi Jews, who are of European descent typically, and the Mizrahim, who are of Middle Eastern descent, plus you have Ethiopian Jews, a whole, whole diversity of different divisions inside the Jewish community that have some political salience. And then third, you have religion. This coalition is not... Positioned to make serious moves on either security or ethnic communal issues, right? They're just they're so internally divided on those issues that it's just very little is going to happen, right? On the religion front, as we as I talked about a little bit earlier, it's possible there could be transformative legislation, but on those those two key issues that we think about a lot when we we talk about Israel in the international context, I, it seems impossible to me that anyone could do anything without forcing a significant. Uh, defection enough to to lose them their majority in the parliament, right? That's the nature of having a left-right coalition, given the importance of security issues in relations with the Palestinians. And I think this, um, it connects really well with, uh, this is a term I used in, and discussed in a previous episode. It's called non-solutionism. It's a way of understanding the way that Israelis have approached the conflict for a while, which is they don't need to have solutions, they just need to muddle through with the status quo, which is acceptable, and minimize the risks that it creates. So you don't solve anything. You just you just make the problem uh, less of a problem for as long as you can manage it. And I'm not saying that's a humane way of approaching the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or a just one. I think the the very clear moral analysis of this is that it's not, right? It's, it's subjecting the Palestinians to a, a state that I think can be fairly likened in a lot of ways to apartheid for an indefinite period of time. But – the fact that there's a, a coalition that has such internal divides on what to do about the conflict and the fact that the sort of mainstream approach in Israel for a while has been non-solutionism on the conflict suggests to me that the, the, the status quo will just continue the policy of non-solutionism and we, we just won't, won't see anything because it'll be too difficult for the coalition to do anything. Now, events may force people's hands, right? A terrorist attack, more rockets being fired out of Gaza, tensions with Iran flaring up. There are all sorts of different ways in which one can imagine – events forcing the government to try to do something about issues related to the Palestinians and foreign policy that then bring out its internal divisions. But as long as they can stay together, a necessary condition of that will be doing nothing about the Palestinians. Doing nothing, sorry, doing nothing to change the status of the Palestinians for better or for worse.
2: Is, is there like a, this is just a thought that just popped in my head, but is there like a, for lack of a better term, wag the dog concern? Like if you have such a weak government. And and there are these obviously Israel faces tons of security issues. Is there at least the the chance that if it looks like the government may fall or there's a lack of support for it, that there could, you know, talk up a security issue with Palestinians or with Iran or whatever it may be and, and sort of escalate in a certain situation and to get a rally around the flag effect and get people behind the government? Is that even something that that we should consider, think about, or is that maybe just me being a little conspirational? As again, it just popped in my head right now.
1: My view is is no, largely because trying to manufacture a conflict in that way would alienate the left and um, Ra'am, the Islamist party, right? And you
2: fair, yeah, right, <laughs> right. Like you,
1: it, it's just it's so divided that you can't on those issues, security, foreign policy, etc. It's going to be very difficult to try to find major initiatives that you're going to get everybody to agree on. One area I do think where there will be um, some change is the relationship with the United States, because. Netanyahu is, uh, he's a lot of things, but one of them is a Republican, not like by party affiliation, but in terms of outlook. He spent a lot of time in the United States and has very, very close links and close ties to the Republican Party institutionally and has approached the US a lot like a Republican partisan. Uh, he, I mean, he's built the US Israel relationship around cementing ties with one of the two major parties and scorning the other one, treating it as a security threat to Israel. Uh, I think that is going to change. I mean, Lapid has been very clear that he wants it to change. And Bennett, I don't think, will have the running room to try to um, create this kind of partisan or strengthen the the increasing partisanization of the U.S.-Israel divide uh, in a way that Netanyahu could when he led a a stable or relatively stable coalition. Um, What do you guys think?
0: Well, to me, you know, in the past two administrations in the U.S., Essentially, the you know up, other than settlements and the position on settlements, I think obviously the Iran deal has been kind of the major wedge between the U.S. and and Israel because you know specifically between you know the Obama administration and Netanyahu, who you know vehemently opposed the Iran nuclear deal and thought it didn't do enough to stop Iran from getting the bomb. Uh, if it wanted, and, you know, gave Iran way too much um, in terms of money, specifically, you know, economic benefits that, you know, Netanyahu and people who agree with his position thought that Iran would, you know, then use to funnel to do more terror attacks and fund more terrorist groups, et cetera. Um, That is one area I think we could see a bit of a detente between the U.S.-Israel relationship specifically, right? The Biden administration right now is working very hard along with European allies to try to, figure out a way for the U.S. and Iran to get back into compliance with the nuclear deal. Netanyahu was the, you know, biggest kind of thorn in that on the Israeli side. There are obvious other, like, compliance issues and negotiation issues between the U.S. and Iran. But talking about the U.S.-Israel relationship, right, that is going to be gone if Netanyahu is gone, right? Lapid and several other people uh, in the coalition are all basically on record having criticized Netanyahu, for opposing the US getting back into the Iran nuclear deal. It's not totally clear where Bennett is going to end up coming down on this if he ends up being prime minister, even if he, you know, ends up being on like the the Netanyahu side, right? Like as we already talked about, he's going to be part of this coalition and so he will have to hopefully in some ways bend his position. So I think we may not see as much of like the hardcore like I mean, remember, Netanyahu literally went on the floor of the U.S. Congress to denounce the the nuclear deal and try to convince U.S. lawmakers to push hard against it. I don't think we're going to see that kind of strong opposition from this coalition to the Iran nuclear deal. And I think that's one good news if you support the U.S. and Iran getting back to the deal. But it's also, going back to the earlier point, is good news for the U.S.-Israel kind of relationship um, if you remove that huge thorn in the relationship— then you can kind of get back to the more general. Now, whether you think that's a good idea for the US and Israel to have a great relationship, et cetera, that's a separate question. So I think the Iran nuclear deal in particular is going to be an interesting space to watch here. One other thing, going back to the Israeli domestic political scene, just one other thought I had. Um, Zach, you talked about the kind of ethno, the kind of ethnic uh, and identity, you know, schisms within Israel. I think in some ways, and I don't want to be too Pollyanna ish here, but I think in some ways, the fact that Neftali Bennett's, you know, Jewish nationalist right-wing party is in a coalition with an Islamist party is something that is potentially beneficial for the ethnic divisions that we've seen, you know, the the Jewish-Arab tensions um, that have flared up over the last month or so. You remember during the latest flare-up between Israel and Gaza, Neftali Bennett had essentially said that he wouldn't work with the Islamists because of what was going on, that he just couldn't sell that essentially to his base. And I remember talking to Zach at the time, and we were saying, like, this is the time when they should most, like, if any time that they should work together, it should be now to help, like, try to in some way heal these divisions and show that, like, they can work together and they can say, we are all part of the same country, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, even in a really basic sense, again, like, they still have ideological divisions. They're not going to be best friends. But I think that alone could go at least a little bit of a way to maybe, heal some of the, like the most on, on the surface, the most vicious tensions that are happening right now, because there is this coalition and, you know, they're saying we will work together. If you can see, you know, the party leaders doing that, then you can potentially see, you know, people on the streets going, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe we should settle down for a little while and and not, you know, completely go to war with one another. I I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe I'm too optimistic. I, I see what you think.
1: I would like to think that you're right. <laughs> right. uh, I, I I'd really like that. It's just um,
0: so would I, but I, I also don't know how much I actually think this will work. Well but. it's
1: it's difficult, right? Like you can right. one scenario that's really easy to imagine for me is that this government splits over some foreign policy crisis or some flare up in tensions with the Palestinians or something related to Jerusalem or something like really, really divisive internally inside the coalition. Netanyahu is in jail at this point. This is a hypothetical again. And so the Likud, you know, which is still the most popular party in Israel, is led by a more palatable member of the center-right that other people like Bennett and Lieberman who are on the broader right can get along with. Uh, If you have similar election results to the one you have right now in terms of like the distribution of seats, that is, which broad ideological tendency gets which percentage of seats, it would be really easy, trivially easy, to form an extremely right-wing government. Including a Jewish supremacist faction that uh, Netanyahu worked hard to bring into his coalition. And like that kind of hard right government, uh, which would, you know, that that's sort of the natural majority right now in the Israeli Parliament, prevented only by Netanyahu's personal unpopularity and authoritarian tendencies. right? That is the only reason why, this change alliance exists in the first place as opposed to a right-wing government with these results. And then you can you can imagine that government going right back to demonizing Arabs inside Israel, to passing laws that hurt their status and equal standing inside Israel, which we've seen all throughout Netanyahu's term. It's possible that this is just a way of getting Netanyahu out the door, and then Israel's rightward march goes right back on to continuing forward after he leaves. That's one of the sort of less optimistic scenarios that could come from this. I just don't know if that's what's going to happen or not.
2: I'll switch gears for a second because uh, as, as is my want, usually I'm thinking a lot about the, the US and sort of the where the Biden administration's at. And I know we, we talked about this for a little bit, but and I, will, I admit to sort of thinking out loud on this because I'm still very all over the place on where I fall. So if I'm Biden, I don't know how I take this news of this new coalition government. On the one hand, BB's gone, you know, and as I agree with sort of everything you guys said so far, like this is what actually be, you know, they'll probably be quieter on Iran and other issues. And like, you know, you can probably keep the the relationship going without it being a big hindrance to U.S. foreign policy objectives. And so on that end, that could probably be good. The, the downside is, I don't know if Biden's going to miss Bibi to a certain extent, right? Like I, I do know that they don't agree on much. But they have a long-term working relationship. They are friends. Like, Netanyahu has welcomed Biden into, like, the family of Israel. If anything, this last uh, Israel-Gaza flare-up, you know, for better or worse, Biden backed his pro-Israel bona fides, right? And he showed that he was a friend to to the nation and that he can have Israel's back. And he did so in part uh, behind the scenes and also in public, as we've talked about before, but behind the scenes because, like, he and Netanyahu know each other. They know each other's buttons. In a way, like, you lose, you know, this is not like a, a, a devil you know situation, but, or grass is greener. It's just, it's, like, Biden already sort of knows the Netanyahu playbook. He's not really sure, I'm, I mean, how could he, a playbook to deal with this Bennett-led weak government? I would wonder what the d- discussions inside the White House are about this, because I bet they're a bit confused about how to feel. Um, anyway, I, I find this fascinating. I mean, it's something I'd be interested to watch, because as you mentioned, like, the Iran deal stuff is still happening you do have an administration push very, very on the on the low end of like maybe testing two states, get both sides back to the negotiating table. Um, and maybe having an Arab party in the government like sort of allows that to happen? Probably not. But who knows? Like it, it's sort of all all over the place. And I, I guess I just don't know if the White House is feeling a little optimistic, if they're a little upset, if they're a little panicked. Like because it, it could be all those things.
0: I guess my last kind of thought is and here, Zach, I want to hear your take. Uh, you know, what this means both for Netanyahu's future and for, you know, the future of Israeli democracy, just kind of in general. We've talked about Netanyahu's growing authoritarian tendencies. He's literally on trial for corruption and bribery, <laughs> other various crimes, including the one you talked about that was very anti-democratic in terms of trying to, like, essentially pay the media for good coverage. And so, I guess my question here is like, what? Again, I know we're talking like as if this coalition is going to hold. It very much could not. We could end up in another round of elections, et cetera. But just assuming this goes forward, or even just the fact that this is happening, and that Netanyahu is not, you know, guaranteed to be in power, you know, what you think that says about Israeli democracy and Netanyahu's future?
1: I think there are two axes of de-democratization in Israel uh, over the course of the past decade or so. One of them is Netanyahu's personalist tendencies, right? His desire to accumulate power in his own hands and to abuse the system for his personal benefit and then increasingly to bend the system itself to prevent accountability for his actions, Mm -hmm. right? That is the way that people turn themselves once they're elected into authoritarians. And there was a real question of whether he was going to get away with it. And right now, it looks like he wasn't. So the particular and specific crisis of Israeli democracy created by Netanyahu himself looks like it's being headed off, uh, which is a great success for the Israeli political system, right? There's there's, there's no way around that. that. This is the system working as it should, allowing even people who are ideologically aligned with a prime minister to break off and oppose him and uh, work with the opposition to to uphold, even if they're not doing it for pure reasons, but ultimately to protect the democratic system. That's great. But the other side of de-democratization in Israel is the increasing willingness of right-wing parties to enforce an ethno-nationalist vision of the country that includes maintaining the marginalized status of Arabs and increasingly indefinite rule over the Palestinians that either is going to be some form of apartheid or or something potentially even worse if it continues for an indefinite period of time. And you can't maintain a democracy when you're ruling over – millions of people without their consent and without their ability to vote and without basic civil rights, right? So there's a conjunction of policies outside Israel's internationally recognized borders that constitute discriminatory, anti-democratic behavior and policies inside its borders, marginalizing left-wing opposition, civil society organizations, right? Attacking them, restricting their rights uh, to appear in public places in certain cases, passing a constitutional amendment equivalent, a basic law, calling Israel the nation-state of the Jewish people, functionally excluding Arabs from being equal citizens symbolically, and there's a whole raft of other things, land use laws that make it easier for Jews to expand their uh, control over land than Arabs, right? It's 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 a whole panoply of things that work to maintain civil inequality in ways that work to integrate the anti-democratic practices in the West Bank with a framework for how to govern the Israeli state inside its normal traditional borders. That hasn't been stopped, and that won't be stopped by. This coalition, because many of the people inside of it, or at least some of them, have been complicit or even the drivers of this thing. You know, Naftali Bennett has been a leader of the movement to annex the West Bank. Right. Uh, Ayala Chiked, his second-in-command, is more than anyone else responsible for trying to marginalize the judiciary and its role as a check on government abuses of civil liberties, which is performed pretty admirably inside Israel's borders. She has been accused of being a fascist by some in Israel for these reasons. It's a little bit overboard, but it, she really does have some populist, anti-democratic tendencies. And if this government leads to right-wing hegemony in the way that I predicted a few minutes ago, my guess is that would be very bad for Israeli democracy in the long run. Right? It would be pushing it towards not only a terrible policy towards the Palestinians, but one that undermines, maybe fatally, Israel's status as a Jewish and democratic state. Uh, so I don't know, right? The the second axis of democratization has very much not been addressed, and Israel is still barreling towards a crisis.
2: Maybe this is a bit naive, but I have a I think a somewhat optimistic point here. Although I guess it's depressing about the U.S., um, <laughs> which is like these parties, these leaders saw what Netanyahu was doing, the corruption that he you know was a part of uh, the uh, his own personalist style, which he abandoned. A lot of these people, his own a lot of his own policies. And they sort of went, like, enough is enough. Like, there's this, there was this feeling among the, the political class that, like, we have to sort of move on beyond this figure. We don't want to really be tied to him anymore. And, again, part of his personal ambition. But it seemed like for, for a lot of Israeli leaders ac- across the spectrum, he had crossed a Rubicon, which makes me sort of think about the U.S. a little bit. Like, everything Trump did, right— And yet the Republican Party is still sort of like falling behind him. There's no real movement to to go beyond. And so there's a part of me thinking about, I I agree with everything you said there, Zach, about the perils of Israeli democracy. But if there's sort of a shining light, it's that there's like this effort to move beyond the guy that that made democracy a bit worse um, or a lot worse in Israel. And I find that to be somewhat inspiring and somewhat troubling for, for the own country I'm in.
1: Um, So we're going to leave you there. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for all of her hard work and for making these episodes uh, better than they have any right to be. I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. And oh, hey, don't forget to send us more emails with your questions. Remember, we really enjoyed doing those last week and we'd love to do them again. So that's Worldly at Vox.com. W-O-R-L-D-L-Y at Vox.com. Thanks a lot and we'll see you next week.